This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, October the 28th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! regular viewer and keen listener would know that I try to change the go every day for you. These are the sacrifices that I make. Coming up on the show today, in the last week, England has ousted one prime minister and named another. The Friday News Panel analyzes some of the political troubles in Britain. Religious affiliation in Canada is on the decline according to census data. We'll consider some causes and implications. And with Halloween around the corner, Greg David will tell you about some special Halloween TV programming. Got some Netflix stuff, got some major network stuff. And uh, just over and over again, y'all are making me talk about scary things, even though you know I don't like it. But we'll ask Greg what his favorite scary movie is or favorite scary show is, and then I'll talk about some of the ones that I could watch when I was young but can't anymore because I'm soft. Let's get to our top story of the day, and it's coming from the world of economics. Just a couple of minutes ago, Stats Canada is out with some economic data. The Canadian economy grew 0.1% in August. That's an annualized pace of 1.2%. Now, that is slower than the U.S. economy that grew at a 2.6% annualized rate, according to data released yesterday. Let's switch to a different economic story. A mediation session has failed to produce a settlement between Rogers and the federal competition watchdog. Don Kelly explains. The Competition Bureau's been trying to block Rogers' $26 billion proposed takeover of Shaw Communications, arguing it will lead to worse service and higher prices for consumers. Rogers, Shaw and Quebec or say they're disappointed the mediation session did not yield a negotiated settlement and remain committed to completing the transaction. Earlier this week, Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne put new conditions on the deal, targeting the sale of Shaw-owned wireless carrier Freedom Mobile to Quebec or's Videotron. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Let's get to some sound from the Emergencies Act inquiry. Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner Thomas Carrick testified yesterday. He discussed how the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor created a a complexity while trying to handle the protests in Ottawa. That was intentionally designed to challenge the capacity of our police. So that had to be very strategically and methodically managed to ensure that when we took action, it just didn't disperse a problem and make it so it was unmanageable. This was a sur- this had to be surgical, this had to be strategic, had to be well thought out, and it had to be planned. There was also some evidence presented yesterday that showed text message exchanges between RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and top brass at the OPP. Carrick read part of the exchange. She replies, thanks, Tom, very helpful. Between you and I only... GOC losing slash lost confidence in OPS. We got to get to safe action slash enforcement because if they go to the Emergency Measures Act, you or 
supposed to be I, I assume, you or I may be brought in to lead, not something I want. Former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly is set to testify today. Let's get to a different federal story with some provincial implications. The Senate committee studying last November's floods in B.C.'s Fraser River Valley say a flood control plan is critical. Senator Paula Simons says federal, provincial, municipal and Indigenous governments should work together on the plan to ensure there are no gaps in jurisdiction. It's not going to be an easy fix, but I think the disaster of last November is a very sharp and forceful reminder that we have to make our diplomacy as efficient as possible in this area because this is something that not one order of government and not one country can solve. Last year's atmospheric river caused nearly $300 million of damage. Let's head overseas where the European Parliament has reached a deal to ban the sale of new gasoline and diesel cars and vans by 2035. Charles de Ledesma has the story. The agreement, the first of the bloc's Fit for 55 package, set up by the Commission to achieve the EU's climate goals of cutting emissions of the gases that cause global warming by 55% over this decade. The plans to drastically reduce gas emissions from transportation by 2050 and promote electric cars. But a report from the bloc's external auditor showed last year that the region is lacking the appropriate charging stations. Pascal Carfin, the chair of the Environment committee says that this sector, which accounts for 16% of European emissions at the moment, will be carbon neutral, he hopes, by 2050. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Now that story is going to relate slightly to our daily poll, but before we get to the polls, one more story for you, and it's back in Canada. The Royal Canadian Legion's National Poppy Campaign kicks off today. Organizers are hoping to modernize the act of remembrance through new initiatives like biodegradable poppies and electronic poppies. Ron Anderson served for 38 years. He reflected on the importance of supporting veterans. It means a lot to me to be able to support these veterans that need our help. Uh, nobody likes to be in need, but through necessity, through circumstances, people do become uh, in need. And we're happy to help out our veterans with our poppy monies that we've earned. There will be more than 27,000 poppy boxes across the country. There will also be 1,000 electronic boxes that accept donations by tapping your card. We saw some of those pop up in the last couple of years. Just be mindful that different boxes have different denominations on them, and sometimes it's not completely clear what that denomination is. That said, if I'm going to accidentally give $10, it might as well be to the Legion and the veterans. Let's get to our daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Thursday, we asked you, what is your level of concern with rising interest rates? 46% of you said very concerned. 39% of you said somewhat concerned. 15% of you said not concerned. We also had a response from James. James, thank you for chiming in at Accessible Media on Twitter. He says, everyone is concerned about 5% mortgage rate and yet don't remember the rates in the 1970s. James is indeed right but again tying housing prices to those rates in the 70s of you know in the 20 percents in the 80s quite high except you could like buy a house in montreal next to downtown for like 40 grand so the rates now if they creep up to 10 15 20 percent no one's going to be able to afford a house anywhere 
But James, I always appreciate you chiming in. We haven't heard from you in a while, so thank you for getting involved in the question on social media. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, today's Daily Poll. It's related to that story out of Europe that I was telling you about, about the ban of gasoline-powered cars and vans by 2035. I'm asking you, where would you like to see governments invest money in transportation? Highways? Public transit? Electric vehicles? High-speed rail? I understand, as always, that typically all of the above would be really nice. (laughs) in terms of what uh, we want our governments investing in, but we know that money, to a certain degree, is finite. In fact, we just had municipal elections in a couple provinces in this country where uh, bike paths versus highways was a big matter of concern. Are cities for cars or cities for bikes and pedestrians? And uh, turns out that a lot of people across the country voted that cities are for cars. Anyway, neither here nor there. We all know all of the above would probably be the best way to vote on that. I will keep banging the train for how, uh, banging the, tr- the, the drum for high-speed trains. I think it's preposterous that we can't get from Toronto to Montreal in less than a couple hours on a high-speed train or Toronto to Ottawa. Basically, anywhere from Windsor to Quebec City, you know, where like the majority of the Canadian population is. We don't need to be shooting airplanes all over the sky, burning fossil fuels to get people after waiting three hours in line at an airport to get through security and having the little mini toothpaste still set off the the security alarms. We need high-speed rail. And I think there could be some application to public transit as well as a building block off of that. But I think high-speed rail in the Windsor-Quebec City corridor would be a really, really good idea. Alex Smythe, what say you? Do we have Alex on mute? Alex, sorry, buddy, we had you on mute there. (laughs) Not a problem, Dave. It's uh, I I was was about to go off about uh, how your toothpaste would set off uh, security alarms, but uh, uh, enough of that. Basically, I I agree with you. You know, I, I think that the train system needs to be improved. I'd like to see the extension of not just the high speed, but also, you know, on the public sector, just the more commuting trains. Like, what makes the European model of transit so effective is that it is so interconnective of every single major city that you can get to. Obviously, North America is a completely different infrastructure. It's, it, the mentality is completely different. But the fact that we can't effectively get from one province to another by train on a consistent basis is something that's really kind of shocking. Because the thing is, if we made a train system that was enticing, that was you know attractive for people, as you mentioned, you wouldn't need to fly everywhere. And if, if you made it in reasonable uh, distances and reasonable times that you could actually go from even Vancouver to, uh, let's say, Winnipeg, you know, in, in half a day or, or, or uh, a few hours, great. You know, you could actually make some real progress. You would get more people doing that instead of driving, instead of flying, instead of doing all these other modes of transportation that are far more uh, impactful on the environment, that cost more. Um, and so I, I really would love to see something where we kind of look towards the future, get less cars on the road, invest more into trains and, and get people wanting to take the public transit yeah. and these commuter trains and things like that. Cause that's the thing. Not, not only do you have to have them, 
you have to ha make it so people want to oh yeah use it has to be usable that's that's 100 percent for sure of course alex we have a bias as blind folks that uh we want <laughs> we want these nice trains because we can't just slip ourselves from vancouver to winnipeg via car eliza rocco you spent what an hour in a traffic jam today on the highway oh so yeah. i'm allowing you to use recency bias here and say <laughs> highways if you want to I'm not going to say highways, actually. I, I, If I could pick all of the above, I would definitely pick all of the above. Highways uh, would be great. But I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something on this list. Trains would be great, too, for the record. But public transit is such a mess in Canada right mm. now, especially Toronto. Toronto is really bad. But Canada in general is just... There's not enough public transit, and there's not enough public transit going to smaller communities. There's mm -hmm. so many isolated individuals who cannot get anywhere. I'm from a small town in the GTA that is just outside of a larger small town, and there is nothing. There yeah. is no way yeah. to get from that small town anywhere. No, there's no buses. There's no trains, obviously. If you don't have a car, you're mm. out of luck. I was really struck by a story when I was moderating a all-candidates debate in Brantford, Ontario during the provincial election earlier this year. And one of the candidates was telling a story of living in Brantford and going to school in Windsor, which isn't, uh, not Windsor, um, uh, Waterloo, ah. which isn't too, too far north of Brantford. It's like, it's sort of within the vein. But to get from Brantford to Waterloo, she had to take a go train to Mississauga and then another go bus back to Waterloo. Oh my god. <laughs> which just doesn't make sense, no. right? That that's maybe not public transit in the way that we think about public transit, but it is. Fundamentally it is. It is. It's about connecting those communities together. And it, I've ta I've had to go from Waterloo to Toronto before I had a car. And it took me five hours. Oh, Five my hours. It was oh insane. I had to go all the way to Mississauga. I had to wait an hour for another go train that took me to Brampton. It was just, it was crazy. And I would I would love to use my car less. I really would. It's it's awful for the climate. I, I mean, I would love an electric car, but that is... Your, your uh, mental really health expensive. probably wasn't too good in that traffic jam this morning. No, no. See, but it would take me... Five to ten times as long to yep. get to work yep. without a car. Mm -hmm. It's it's truly insanity, and it drives me nuts. Yeah, you have to now. To to some credit, to some credit, it looks like they're starting to think about a couple different ideas in Toronto. Especially is it the is it the Millennium Line they're calling it? What what's the the Trinity Line? What's the thing that they're the running Ontario from Ontario Line from the Ontario Science Center that's going to run down mm -hmm. to uh, Union Station yeah. or uh, down all the way to ex Exhibition Place? I think there's like something to that, but that's that's like 14 years. That's like 14 years down the pipeline on the ideal on the ideal side. So yeah, I agree. You have to start connecting these communities together. It can't be just hodgepodge, piece by piece. Um, Eliza, thank you for this, and I'm sorry you were stuck in a traffic jam this morning. <laughs> okay. But you're here in one piece, and we appreciate it. I made it. That's Eliza Rocco. You can vote on our poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let's go back to Alex Smythe for the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. So it's a much better day than yesterday. There was lots of rain. This time, there's a lot more sun in the forecast. So let's start in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's cloudy with a chance of showers in the morning, but then it is clearing. And wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 13. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's sunny and a high of 11. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly sunny and a high of 10. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's sunny 
and a high of 11 as well. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds. There is a frost advisory in effect this morning. So, you know, the cold weather is here and the high is 11. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of showers in the morning, but then it's clearing up in the afternoon and 14 is the high. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sunny clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 14. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 13. Over to Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and 10 is the high. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's cloudy with a chance of showers in the morning, but then clearing up later and the high is 12. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries in the morning and the high is negative eight. Over to Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sunny clouds with a chance of showers and a high of 11. Finally, in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this morning, but then clearing up later and 13 is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you so much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. But coming up next, we bring together the weekly news panel. We'll talk about some of the political troubles and turbulence in Britain. Liz Truss out. Rishi Sunak in. Eh, maybe we need a system where prime ministers only hold the post for 45 days. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring together the weekly news panel by welcoming into the show Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. How's it going? Not too shabby. And Michelle, good morning to you as well. Good morning, friends. Good to be back. Let's start in the world of politics and we'll begin abroad for some political troubles in Britain. Former Prime Minister Liz Truss was ousted from the job after just 45 days in office. Truss reflected on her time as PM. It has been a huge honour to be Prime Minister of this great country. In particular, to lead the nation in mourning the death of Her Late Majesty the Queen after 70 years of service and welcoming the accession of His Majesty, King Charles III. New Prime Minister Rishi Sunak acknowledged how rocky the last few months have been. Some mistakes were made, not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact, but mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister, in part, to fix them. Sunak pledged to rebuild trust in the government. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. Every time we play Sound Out of England, I love there's just a bramble of people protesting. It's, it's a rowdy bunch over there in Britain. Okay. <laughs> just a little bit of heckling in the background. Yeah, yeah. just a little bit of heckling, <laughs> totally. you know? 
I, I, just a drone of discontent. <laughs> just, oh, that's so good. That's po- that's poetry right there by Michelle McQuinn. That's pre-coffee. I'm yeah, on well, fire. Well done. Okay. Well done. Okay, so guys, to say that Liz Truss made some political blunders on the way is fair, particularly around economic policy. Uh, some folks, even conservatives in the UK, were calling it uh, libertarian experimentalism with the national economy. And uh, that, that didn't go over super, super well. No. But do you think the blunders were enough to topple her in less than two months? Michelle, did Liz Truss get a fair shake? You know what? I feel like she did it in a sense. And, and now I, I'm going to preface all of this by saying that my, my knowledge of British politics is limited to what reading I can do. So this is not a, a file I live and breathe like I do with Canadian mm-hmm, politics. Mm-hmm. But from what I understand, A, there were cautions sounded about Liz Truss's economic plan long before she assumed power. She ran her campaign on it, and then she delivered on her promises. So that in and of itself is kind of refreshing and kind of noteworthy, I would say. Mm-hmm. But there were lots and lots of red flags in the run-up to this. And so it's not like she sprung a surprise on anyone. She did enact policies that elicited strong, strong warnings, including from Rishi Sudak, who has a fair bit of credibility in financial markets and, and a strong economic background. Um, so the experts were sounding cautions. She went ahead anyway. The markets reacted as as was foretold by the experts. And that is a very significant exposure that she left for her country. It, it causing, being the direct cause of economic turmoil, I don't think is something that a lot of politicians are able to walk away from. Certainly she was not. Um, it happened faster than I would have expected, I would say, but I do think she was given a fair shake. She was a known entity. She was a very high-profile minister in Boris Johnson's government. People knew what they were getting into. She did deliver what was promised. The reaction spooled out according to predictions. That's all fair game for me. I have a mea culpa coming in just a moment here, but I want to give Joy to the same opportunity to answer uh, the, the broader question of did Liz Truss get a fair shake? And I think it really depends on who you ask. Uh, but again, bear in mind, she had the shortest term in UK history. And um, although she received a lot of support from the rank and file of her party, she did not receive a lot of support from the caucus, which had always been behind Rishi Sunak. And I think that's an important consideration because um, if you don't have caucus behind you to start with, then the caucus can really be instrumental in causing problems for you as a leader because they just can't get behind you. And it's true, just to pick up on what Michelle was saying, that she has had a lot of prior experience, um, has had many years uh, in cabinet, uh, has held many high-profile roles. But I was reading some articles in the CNBC uh, where someone, where uh, you know, there were some people who were quoted who basically said, you know, Liz Truss was just kind of weird. Uh, she was a bit of a loner, <laughs> uh, which is not something you typically hear about a politician, but one gets the sense that she might have been experienced but not well-liked by her colleagues. And that's not an insignificant thing when you consider that uh, her economic policies have been so disastrous in their implementation that even, you know, that she kind of got the short shrift because she didn't really um, have the, the goodwill of her caucus colleagues to back her up in that situation. So um, I think it's really important to look at what happened with her. Uh, initially, uh, once it became clear that the, the pound uh, was starting to be was devalued versus the dollar and, and the markets were starting to collapse and there were all of these problems that flowed from her, her, uh, her mini budget, 
the first thing she flipped around and did was sack her chancellor. And at that point, a lot of people who, as Michelle said, you know, this was her economic policy. Mm -hmm. She'd been very up and mm -hmm. upfront about it. A lot of people said, okay, but you're clearly trying to shift the blame here. When are you going to resign? And then, of course, the next person in, the new chancellor, turned around and did a 180, reversed everything. And again, there were questions raised about whether she had actually lost control of the whole situation. It's a massively humiliating situation to come right out, swinging and say, this is my economic policy, and then have to reverse course. Um, and of course, we can quibble about whether she might have lasted a bit longer or, you know, um, and, and things like that. But the bottom line is, this is a clear case of self-inflicted wounds, uh, you know, as, where a politician didn't really consider the implications of their economic policy before rolling it out. It was the 1980-esque Reaganism, Thatcherism, and we can sit here and debate about whether those policies were successful back in the 80s, but post-COVID-19, two years of economic hardship, it just wasn't going to fly, and I think she paid the price for that. Not that I'm trying to bait you guys, but I've really been waiting all week for some commentators to come out with the sexism card and really nobody took the bait. And I'm, and I'm curious why nobody has taken that. Not you guys. Oh. When I say nobody, I'm just curious why people more broadly haven't brought that conversation into this. That, you know, George W. Bush ran the American economy into the ground and he's like having a huge renaissance 10 years later. She might have a huge renaissance 10 years later. You never know. Yes. It, it, yeah. <laughs> if, in a world where Boris Johnson very nearly reclaimed his job. Yeah. Less it, than three months after losing it. Yeah, anything is possible. Yeah. But I do think there's... Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not going to bite, Dave, but I'm going to think about this. That's I, I, I wasn't trying to make you guys bite. I just want to be maybe the first person in media to actually raise this because people did that with Lisa Laflamme in like two minutes. They were like, sexism. And nobody's been there for Liz Truss. And I wonder if it has something to do with where her politics align with the people who would bang the sexism drum. And I want to talk about economics Perhaps. for one second here. Because, yeah. yes, in, within a couple of weeks, her economic policy proved to be catastrophic. I would also tell you that anytime we're talking about a different or non-systemic mainstream political economic ideology, I don't think two weeks is enough sample size to truly evaluate it. But in times of overall economic crisis, we don't want to be experimenting. But I would also suggest that anybody who wants to try something different economically should get more than two weeks to try and implement their economic policy. I would also argue, though, that it behooves a leader to listen to good advice. And yes. she did not do that. <laughs> that is absolutely the case, 100%. Okay, here's my mea culpa, even though what I just said is probably going to force me to mea culpa in a couple more weeks anyway. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, and I somewhat took up the defense of Danielle Smith, not what she was saying, but the fact that she was trying to rile up her base and lean into her base. And there are no political consequences for simply leaning into your base and riling people up. Well, I seem to have standed corrected uh, within about <laughs> 10 days because to me, this strikes me as absolutely an element of political consequences of your rhetoric leaning too far into your base. Michelle? I would absolutely agree with that. And I, and I will go as far as to say that I think it's early days to say whether or not Danielle Smith will face consequences. Uh, she is forging ahead also with a pretty divisive agenda. Uh, she is sticking to her roots and the, and the platform to on which she got elected so far anyway. Um, I, I foresee some interesting times in Alberta and I kind of welcome the notion of, of having of political accountability. Yeah. Since yeah. it seems like something that kind of got lost in the shuffle somewhere along the way. <laughs> somewhere for um, sure. Not always true, uh, but certainly we've seen a lot of um, 
a lot of governments in recent years have enacted policies that proved very divisive on the COVID front, among many, many, many others. And most of them survived, despite having formidable opposition uh, in terms of popular uh, unpopularity, sometimes even strong, worthy political foes to run against them, not always. Um, but in an era where that seems to have, where a lot of policies have gone unchallenged and governments that some people felt should be held to account uh, survived those challenges against them, uh, it's kind of refreshing in a way <laughs> to see a bit of a, a pushback against some of that. Juita, will you accept my mea culpa? And, and does this feel a little bit refreshing to a certain degree to see actual political consequences for poor policy and bad messaging? Uh, yeah, I think to a point for sure, uh, she's faced, she's obviously dealt with the consequences of poorly thought out economic policy more than anything else. And, and I think I said this before, and I'll say it again, clearly she pandered to her base and got elected on that basis. But that support did not extend to the party caucus. And I kind of keep coming back to this because even we saw this even with Boris Johnson, with members of the caucus stepping down. It's it's a massively, uh, it's deeply problematic for the prime minister or for a leadership, uh, for anyone in a leadership position not to have the support of their caucus behind them. And clearly those policies did not resonate with the rest of the country either. Mm. Um, one of the things to keep in mind with Liz Trust is she never really had a popular mandate. And I think that might be one of the reasons mm. why uh, other parties have been able to survive where she did not. There was never an election. Uh, people didn't you know, get a chance to vote for her. Uh, people in her party got to vote for her. Right. But the general populace right. never really had a chance to mark a ballot. And that is a significant uh, that's significant because I think some of the sure policies is. that she that she that ends up rolling out in the UK are so different from what the Tories were elected on that this that there was you know they did, they couldn't did a U-turn almost or they had these very extreme uh, political policies brought in without a political mandate or a, or a mandate to govern from the general population. I think that might have been one of the reasons why she met with such a swift demise. Uh, so. Really, she, the bottom line is she lent very heavily into her base. She's not alone in doing that, but she did not have parliamentary support and she did not have popular support to back that up. So we can see that, at least if you want to think about future implications for other leaders like Danielle Smith in, in Alberta, we see that at least from her example, pandering to your base might get you elected to the leader's office, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to stay there. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's the, the bottom line with that one. Michelle? I just want to say, Joita, I'm glad you latched on to that lack of election issue, because I think that's an interesting element of this conversation. And I will note that there is a parallel between Liz Truss and Danielle Smith on those grounds. Danielle Smith was appointed by the by the party membership. She was not uh, voted premier as part of a general election. Uh, so that's another parallel that I hadn't actually considered, and that I'll be watching with extra mm. interest in light of all this. I want to wrap this up with a really easy question, guys. Super, super easy. Um, there have been pretty significant protests over the economy in Europe over the last few weeks. Of course, we've had a couple doozies in Canada as well that resulted in an Emergencies Act being declared to end those protests. We've seen people like Jason Kenney get ousted in Alberta by his own party. We're talking about a democracy in the United States in a couple of weeks that's going through a midterm election where there are already people uh, sounding the alarm about, the, about what the outcome might mean for the future of democracy. Joita, is democracy getting really hard? 
Uh, no, it's not, Dave. And the reason I say that is because democracy always gets harder when times are tough. Exactly. If you look yeah. at the 1930s and the years following the Great Depression and the lead up to the Second World War, we see the collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany. Democracy struggled in all over Europe and North America. So whenever you have tough economic times, and we've had the coronavirus again, which threw everything off kilter. It's made democracy that much harder. Uh, because what happens when you have tough economic times, uh, or just tough times in general, is populist sentiment gains ground. And, you know, um, quick fixes in terms of economic policies gain ground. But we find that the resulting public policies aren't very practical and can sometimes even be dangerous. So democracy is always hard when times get tough. I like I like that. That's a great answer to that question, Michelle. You affirmed with Joita on that one, but I wonder if you want to elaborate. I would only extend it and say democracy is hard not only when times are tough, but always. I think that's it's never it's always a bit of a thankless task to to be the leader of a democratically elected government. Um, democracy itself is an imperfect form of voting, but uh, as I think we've even quoted on the show before, it's deemed to be better than all the others. So it's not easy by default. And I think uh, I, I agree with Joey that things may get perhaps more difficult in, in tough economic times, but I would argue that it's never a simple task. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, thank you for going abroad with me for this political conversation. Coming up next, we come back home where religious affiliation in Canada is on the decline, according to census data. We'll consider some causes and implications. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Stats Canada keeps providing us with all kinds of cool data to kick around. This week, we learned about more religious affiliation in Canada. It turns out that religious affiliation is on the decline. 34.6% of Canadians report having no religious affiliation. That number has doubled in the last 20 years. Christianity, still the most popular religion in Canada, with 53% reporting an affiliation with a form of Christian faith. In 2001, that number was 77%, so a pretty steep decline. Michelle, I just gave a couple data points there, but this story jumped off the page to you. Why? It's, it's one of those building blocks of society or has it conventionally been treated as such when people talk about what a country is like uh, the religious affiliation of that country and its population often seems to enter the conversation but these kinds of declines are very steep especially over a 20-year period um the, the the dip from 50, 77 to 53 percent in christianity identification is really really striking uh, the fact that the number of people with no excuse me, religious affiliation, the fact that that's doubled in 20 years, really striking stuff to me. Um, there are a lot of implications for that. And I'm saying this as someone who would count themselves among the 34% probably. Um, so this is not something with deep personal resonance to me, but I do think it has important implications. When we talk about religion, a lot of people talk about that as the basis for their their sense of identity, their sense of belonging, their sense of community. And in light of some of the social forces that have uh, come up in the past couple of decades as this trend was taking root and really getting entrenched here, 
Uh, it raises a lot of interesting questions to me that I thought we could bat around for a while. Juida, I want to start with you. Any theories on the decline? I've got a couple theories, and I think the two that are most prominent would be um, the impact of immigration. So we've yes. seen that the numbers of Hindus has gone up. So in the 20-year period examined, we had 1% of the population identify as Hindus in 2001. That's up to 2.3% today. With Muslims, again, 5% of the population now identifies as Muslim, and that has doubled over the last 20-year period. So I think immigration is really changing the landscape in terms of the religious affiliation of um, of the demographic. That's the first theory. The second one, I think, uh, is really a more of a generational issue, where with each subsequent Gener with each generation, um, religion has just become less important in people's lives. And I know this seems like a bit of a, a no-brainer, but, uh, you know, there is a lot of data to back up this generational shift. Apparently, 19% um, of Canadians over the age of 65 report having no religious affiliation. That goes up to 36% of Canadians reporting no religious affiliation between the ages of 15 and 65. And then this was really surprising for anyone uh, 14 and under, 42% uh, of uh, Canadians report having no religious affiliation. So what I suspect happened was that baby boomers stopped attending church. Maybe they went on Easter, maybe they went for Christmas, <laughs> and then subsequent generations, uh, maybe they still identified as Christian, but you know they weren't really going and attending um, church every Sunday or, or in any sort of regular fashion, and subsequent generations stopped even having that affiliation. So I think religion has just become less important in people's lives. It could be because of skepticism around religion. It could be because, you know, people have moved for work and there's been a fragmentation of community. It could also just be, and you'll allow me to lean on my one sociology or two sociology classes that I took as, a, as an undergraduate. Uh, it could just be that religion has not, doesn't play as a bigger role in people's lives anymore. So for example, 50, 60 years ago, if you wanted to get married, where would you go to find a spouse? You would go to the congregation. If you wanted a job or if you ran into, you, you came up against hard times, you would get help from your church. And now we have a number of secular institutions or dating apps or job finding sites that have replaced the role of the religious institution in our community. So I think there's a plethora of reasons, but one of the things it's, that is clear from the data is that this trend is here to stay. And it's not just Canadian data that would, would give you this impression. Uh, similar trends have been seen in the US and the UK as well. You both used the word com community there. And this is going to sound like one of the Dave Brown greatest hits because I will say this from time to time. <laughs> the internet has allowed us to create community elsewhere. There's also plenty of other secular places locally that allow us to create community. But typically, if you have a point of interest, no matter what that point of interest may be, the internet is offering you the possibility to connect with other humans digitally and sometimes in person about that interest. It used to be that the church was the place where you would play sports and meet people and not just do Bible study or do Quran study or spend time looking at the Torah, or the Tanakh, you would spend time engaging with people, having pancake dinners, having community, having theater. So it was a center of a community. We've now found ourselves in a world where it's easier to find community elsewhere, which actually is one of the negative implications that I see here, even as much like Michelle, I'm also not affiliated. I do think about growing up 
in a fairly religious family and a lot of the opportunities that I had to be engaged in a community from a young age where I got to spend a lot of time with different kinds of people. And I think that there's something about that that had a meaning to me that still framed me who I am, not necessarily about a deity in the sky, but about my ability to engage with people of different age groups and different social backgrounds, which some folks are going to be losing. And I do actually worry about a negative implication that is a loss of a sense of a connected community, especially at a local point of view. Michelle, as you, you also use the word community, you've also been thinking about implications. What are some that come to mind for you? I do, and I, I also worry about the lack of of community or the loss of of, the, of some of those communities for some people. Uh, like you said, you've raised a lot of really great points about the ways in which people have found substitutes that works that work very well for them in many cases. But I do know that a lot of people look to their or once looked to their sense of religion and their church or their their place of worship. I should I should specify. Um, <clears throat> for a sense of, of something really fundamental, not not just your community, but your sense of identity and your sense of, of sort of order in the world. Um, I think a lot of that has been challenged for reasons that we've all talked about. I'm glad you mentioned immigration, Joita. That's a big one, I think. I also suspect that some, some a lot of recent events around disclosures of abuse at residential schools, among Oof, many others, yeah. have, have, have cast a cloud on, on matters for a lot of people and made them raise some fundamental questions. And to me, and this is possibly a bit of a hot take, uh, and feel free to challenge me on this, but I, I do see a bit of a, of a potential connection between reduced religious affiliation and the rise of populism as people look for something else to, to, to sort of reintroduce some, some, some order or some sense of, of solutions to their lives. This is something that populism offers, and it really does appeal to people who feel disenfranchised and rootless and marginalized. In, and, and quite often these are demographics that are not accustomed to feeling that way and have not historically felt themselves to be on the margins. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't know if we could ever prove such a theory, but to me, the connection is at least in the wind and something mm. that could be discussed. The, the, that That's one that I think we'd have to d dive a little deeper into the stats on. I think empirically we've, Absolutely. we've seen that actually the evangelical movement in the United States has actually driven a lot of the populism going on right now. So there might be a disconnect there. But I think this is one that I think if we brought in some like real experts on this one and picked their brains, they could give us a ton of insight. Joita. I would love to hear what they have to yeah, say because this is nothing but a half-baked theory. Yeah, no, point. no, but, but that's that's what the news panel's all about. That's what Dave sure. Brown Consulting does. We're always we love the, half baked theories yeah, here. <laughs> we're in the ide, we're in the ideation phase perpetually on Dave Brown Consulting. It's uh, it's only later that we bring in experts to to rein us in. Uh, Joita, some of the implications here, whether it be positive or negative, I think Michelle and I both maybe leaned a little bit negative. You obviously you can go that way too, but the implications that come to mind for you. Well, there's a couple of things, and I want to preface it by saying that no one is actually asking for any of this right now. That's a huge thing to keep in mind, so I'm not saying, you know, go ahead and ask for this, but one of the implications we might see with um, fewer people attending churches and places of worship is calls to uh, take away the tax exemptions offered uh, to many places I, of worship. I had that thought too, but I was too afraid to share it. But, you know, again, the, the caveat being that no one's actually asking for this, but you may have that ask come up 20 years down the road or 30 to 40 to 50 years down the road if the trend continues you may similarly see people um having discussions about and this is just i specifically for ontario i don't know if it'll really track across the country but uh whether we still need a separate catholic school board 
um, and whether, you know, we should, you know, that's a big, uh, big issue as well. Um, I said previously, the numbers of Hindus and Muslims are going up. I know that there are religious schools, say for the Jewish community, and many of them are privately funded. You may actually see the argument go the other way. You might have some people say, but why should we pay for any sort of religious schooling? Take it all away, Catholic schools included. But you may see the pendulum swing the other way, where you're going to have people saying, but we want schooling that uh, allows you to read uh, Muslim or Hindu scripture. We want children to have have access to that information. So it's really hard to say which way it'll swing, uh, because I think one of the things I often reflect on is the lack of religious affiliation doesn't necessarily mean a lack of religiosity. Mm. Um, and so you yes. might actually still have people uh, worshiping privately. And take me, for example, I do pray very quite often. I light incense. I have a little um, I have a little altar and I have my little idols at home and I um, and I, you know, I pray by there. But I can honestly say I probably go to the temple maybe once a year uh, for a special festival, but no more than that. Um, and I suspect that you might actually get a lot of people leaning into, and this kind of ties back to Michelle's point about populism. I don't think it's entirely half-baked, where people are really looking for something to replace the sense of community. Robert Putnam's, you know, Bowling Alone essay that made waves. It was a seminal work about how ties are loosening in our communities. People may turn to populism uh, or the internet or some other way to try and replace that sense of community. But to keep in mind that the data is not telling us whether people are less religious mm -hmm. it's only really ever telling us if they're going if they're if they're as open uh with their affiliations and i think that's an important distinction right how often does totally. so, how often does yeah. somebody say oh i'm i'm not religious but i'm spiritual right all, all the meditation mm -hmm. classes and the yoga classes <laughs> yeah. and all these things that are going on someone may say oh i'm religiously unaffiliated but i still believe in a lot of this in other. fact those things or yeah, people who identify things. extremely strongly with a culture I know I have several Jewish friends who, who are not regular attenders of synagogue, but who are deeply, deeply attached to their Jewish heritage mm -hmm, and culture mm -hmm. and observe all kinds of traditions and would never, ever dream of relinquishing those. Juita. Yeah. I was just going to say also there's been an explosion to your point about meditation and yoga. There's been an explosion in meditation retreats. I myself was looking into a week long uh, silent meditation retreat to see if I can actually just not talk for a week. Uh, uh, but, you know, <laughs> so my point is, you know, that we have to also recognize that there is a void that people are stepping in to fill. I mean, that meditation retreat that I was talking about is full. The one in December is full. The one wow. in March is full. So it's wow. really, it's saying something as well. And Joita, that leads us perfectly into wrapping up this segment and saying coming up next, because coming up next, we'll be talking about getaways and vacations that are relaxing, maybe not meditation, but in this case, sleep-centric vacations. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown alongside Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have one more topic to discuss, and this one comes from the mind of our producer, Paul Daniel. There's an increase in sleep tourism, where people plan sleep-centric stays in hotels and resorts all around the world. Park Hyatt in New York offers the Bright Restorative Sleep Suite, a 900-square-foot suite filled with sleep-enhancing amenities. Rosewood Hotels and Resorts launched a collection of retreats called the Alchemy of Sleep, designed to promote rest. 
I would suggest to you that most vacations to some degree promote rest. But Joita, would you ever consider going to another location just to get a good night's sleep? Yes, absolutely. And I live downtown Toronto. It's always noisy. It never quietens down. Um, and so when I've gone camping, for example, I've gotten some of the best sleep ever because you're out in nature and you get not just, you know, the requisite eight hours of sleep, but you get that deep REM sleep. So 100%, I would consider if I was really tired and desperate and, and extremely fatigued, I would consider going elsewhere. Michelle, what about you? Um, this is to answer your question. When I read Paul's pitch, I went, oh, cool. I would totally <laughs> do this. <laughs> um, I, I will note that the hotel suite that they're offering here is a little bit larger than my entire home. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, no, I, I think it's a very interesting idea. There are all kinds of factors, especially in, in big cities, like Joita said, um, in which people are not able to get the kind of sleep they need. We know this is a pressing issue. We know there's major health implications for this. Um, the big question I have for the, some of these packages I would love to see is a bit more equitable pricing because a lot of the people who are, are less able to take advantage of, of good night's sleep and you don't necessarily have... Uh, favorable conditions for consistent good night sleeps are probably some of those who could benefit from the, this kind of approach the most and some of those who are probably least able to pay for them. Yeah, equity is certainly a big part of this. I I, I would suggest, Paul Paul put down this, this note here about is this answering a need or just a fad? I would say for sure the concept of getting more rest and getting better sleep and getting more REM sleep, as Juita put it, is definitely a need whether it be our devices, whether it be light pollution, whether it be stress and anxiety and mental health, overwork, all of these things impact people in very, very specific ways and people do require sleep. I do lean a teensy bit to the fad side on this simply because I would argue a lot of stuff like this, whether it was marketed as sleep, already existed, right? You could go to a mm -hmm. retreat in Colorado and just go sit by a mountaintop for four days in peace. And let me tell you, You'll get some good sleep. So, Joita, where, where do you stand in regards to this perhaps being a little bit more of a marketing fad than necessarily a, a good faith gesture in promoting healthy habits? Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I think it, it is answering a genuine need. But the other piece of this around where I think uh, some of my skepticism comes in, and I think it might be a bit of a fad that hotels are pushing, is that, um, let's face it, the hotel industry is in a lot of trouble. Uh, think about Airbnb that's really taken a big chunk out of their um, out of their market. People are now not going to a, a traditional hotel. They're booking Airbnbs, for example. And so hotels are having to find ways to attract guests. And so I think this is a bit of a gimmick in the sense that a hotel is basically offering you what they've always been able to offer you, which is soundproofing and a nice mattress and uh, the ability not to be disturbed. You can have a little hang thing on your door that says, do not disturb, and they'll, they'll leave you alone. And they're now packaging it in terms of a wellness uh, priority just because they're also trying to cap recapture the market, mm. the market share that they've lost to, um, to Airbnb, for example. Let me tell you, not all hotel rooms are soundproof. I've had some issues uh, over the years getting some pretty poor nights sleep at hotels. And they don't always have nice mattresses either. And they don't always have <laughs> nice mattresses either. And sometimes they have very loud air conditioners. But Michelle, I think Joita oh and I God. are landing a little bit closer to the fad side on this. Where do you land? I would probably agree with you. I, I, I think <clears throat> as a marketing strategy, I think it's a relatively savvy one. Uh, it certainly jumps off the page and it's something I hadn't necessarily seen before. So it has a bit of freshness to it as a marketing concept. 
And I, I bet it will actually work on a number of fronts. But yeah, I, I do see it as, as a certain element of marketing spin. However, if uh, hotels feel the need to improve their mattress quality in order to deliver on this promise, I support that. Yeah, no, I, mean, look, I, I do think there is something here, right? You give, give me more air purifiers, give me white noise machines, give me little mm. citrus misters that make it, you know, feel good. And my big king size bed on super soft sheets that breathe and a mattress topper that breathes. And maybe we and don't have- windows that open and let in some real windows air, Windows that open and let in like, some real air. And maybe the smart thermostats that aren't so bright, they shine into my light sensitive eyes all night long, oh, thus preventing me from getting a good night's sleep. But I will say this, on the whole, I sleep super well in hotels. What about you, Michelle? No, I'm hit and miss. It really depends. It can be amazing. But also, it, 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 there are some hotels that have made me long for my home, like few other things. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, like <laughs> so, I, I've had some mixed bags for sure, for sure, including... And I, go ahead. And I'm, I'm not necessarily the target audience for this because I actually do tend to sleep pretty well. Um, so I, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the best person to qualify, but I, I think done right, it can be definitely very effective. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think give me the right amenity and, and, and I'm into it. But I, as I said, I sleep super, super well in hotels and it has nothing to do with CBD, THC and Jack Daniels. Joita, what about you? Do you sleep better in hotels? <laughs> Yes, and I think it has less to do with the hotels and more to do the fact with the fact that I'm an obsessively busy traveler. Like I walk, I see all the sights, I run around, mm. and so when I get to the hotel at whenever at night, um, I generally just collapse into bed and I'm and I'm and I sleep like a. I sleep like the dead. Mm. And then I do the whole thing all over again next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, this conversation will lead nicely into a conversation we're going to have on Monday with Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive, about paid time off and various vacation policies and what we like in some restful time off from a workplace point of view. So that'll, that'll be Monday morning at about 9.30 a.m., right after we talk to Michelle McQuig for a weekend news recap. So, Michelle, with that, we say goodbye to you for the day. Have a lovely weekend. We'll talk to you Monday morning. Same to you, everyone. Take care. Joita, just before I say goodbye to you, we uh, previewed this on the show yesterday, but you have a really interesting episode of The Pulse that's out there right now. Yes, and we're talking to Judy Human, who uh, was featured in the Cripcam documentary and who wrote a memoir and was a guest on The Pulse once before about a training program that's being offered by Fable Tech Labs. They've got three free, uh, free courses that you can take. Judy Human is teaching one about advocacy in the workplace. She talks to us about that. And you learn about some of the other free courses that you can take on this truly accessible platform if uh, you're someone who is uh, blind or has any other disability and you're a job seeker. And that is in honor of National Employment Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in October. And just because somebody missed the live broadcast Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time doesn't mean they can't find this on demand. Find The Pulse on your favorite podcasting platform, or you can even check it out on AMI's YouTube page. Hey, Joita, thank you. Hope you're feeling better and have a great weekend. Thank you. Take care. That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, I've got a couple news stories, and then Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, October the 28th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely reviews the thriller horror film, The Black Phone. 
And staying with the theme of Halloween, Greg David will tell you about some special Halloween TV programming. You'll also hear from Nisreen Abdel-Majid and Brock Richardson is standing by. But before we get to any of that, let's get to a couple of news stories. Over a quarter of federal government employees are still experiencing problems with their pay because of the Phoenix pay system. Laura Osmond has the latest. A new report from Canada's Auditor General says 28% of civil servants in its sampling had errors in their pay, which is down from an estimated 47% last year. Meanwhile, more than $500 million in overpayments were made to more than 100,000 employees, some dating back more than three years. If the government doesn't collect those overpayments soon, the auditor says it may run out of time to use some recovery mechanisms because of legal limitations. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Oh man, if I got overpaid by... By, let's call it a couple milli, I'd be trying to run out that clock left, right, and center to make sure that you couldn't get that quiche back. It's not fraud if uh, you have your lawyer help you with it. Legal advice with Dave Brown. Let's get to one story about nature and the environment. By the way, I'm not condoning fraud. Don't commit fraud. Give back money that gets overpaid into your bank account. But 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 just saying, just saying, if I was in that situation, I would, I would make sure my lawyer exercised all the options. <laughs> researchers admit by the way my lawyer is still on maternity still on paternity leave so yeah, not available to me also his retainer was a case of beer so very unofficial let's get to an environment and climate story researchers admit they're stumped as to what caused the recent deaths of two great white sharks off the waters of canada's atlantic coast karen rebo explains Fred Wariski of the Ocean Tracking Network at Halifax's Dalhousie University calls the deaths within a two-week period extremely abnormal. In the course of my lifetime, fewer than five white sharks that I have heard of beaching anywhere in the, the North American area, so this is a highly unusual event. One of the dead great whites was found on a beach in New Brunswick in mid-October. The other, a juvenile, was found in North Sydney, Nova Scotia this past Wednesday. Wariski says great whites don't have any predators in Atlantic Canadian waters. So it's possible a virus or a bacteria is to blame. But he says scientists just don't have a good idea of the types of diseases white sharks get. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Oh, those sharks are making their way north. Cape Cod, Massachusetts overrun because they restored the seal population and now they're coming for us. Not that I fear them, except that I completely fear them. Someone that I do not fear is Brock Richardson. He's here for a sports chat. Brock, hello to you. Let's start with some news out of the football world. There's a game taking place in England on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. Holler if you hear me, if you like eggs and football. But there's been some uh, quibbling about Broncos quarterback Russell Wilson maybe being a little bit of a disturbance on the team plane on the way over. Yes, uh, this is an interesting one to me. He... Went on record after uh, landing in England saying that he was the only one doing high knees, watching video. He was like, you know, outlining, uh, you know, it's an eight hour flight and I did this for two hours and watch film and high knees. And like he was literally calculated, making sure that he got to his eight hour mark allegedly was the flight. I don't know, Dave. I, I, I don't. 
buy into Russell Wilson. I, I look at their record and I go, yeah, you got two wins. Um, you might want to do a little more of those high knees if you, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I, and there's been some interesting narratives that like, he's a bit of a, uh, speaking of a word you used earlier, fraud, you know, in the sense that like, he, he, I don't know, he's just a weird cat and I don't buy any of what he's selling. To me, it's like go on the field, do your job, and two wins isn't that doing your job. He's been playing very poorly this year, so I understand why he perhaps wants to create that narrative. I'm working hard here, except that it was an overnight flight from Denver to London where the guys were trying to sleep to get their body clocks on schedule. And here's Russ uh, doing high knees and making noise and being kind of acting kind of a fool. I don't know, man. I also think it's a little bit of a bad look on Russell Wilson. Should be mentioned, he also framed it as, oh, you know, it's because of my partially torn hamstring. It's all part of the rehab effort. I had to stretch out while we were up in the air. And uh, he has just been cleared as a healthy player for Sunday Sunday's game in London. So uh, maybe the high knees on the plane helps. But I agree, Brock. It, it, it He's given off that impression of a bit of a me guy. And uh, some of the news that came out of Seattle after he left is that Russ was a bit of a weirdo. And let's just say the Seahawks were pretty happy to see him go. Mm, yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, I, I was hopeful that, you know, he'd, he'd do something good in Denver, maybe, you know, recalibrate his career if you want to put it that way no he's done nothing but make himself look like a meathead so yeah. i mean you know that's just that's just me speaking some truth this morning at a little after dropping, 10 dropping hot takes here i love it that's what it's all about brock let's uh, get a quick reaction to the thursday night football game your reaction to the baltimore ravens beating the tampa bay buccaneers 27 22 the game was not as close as the final score my uh, reaction is the following, and I'll react by giving you a stat. So the last time Tom Brady has lost three games in a row was in 2002. Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson was five years old at Oof. the time. Uh, this has been a long time. Uh, I will tell you this, Dave. It was kind of a boring game. It wasn't all that exciting. When I saw Baltimore won, I was like, mm, Things are going to get real now, and I'm going to go on record and say that I think Tampa Bay is going to make the playoffs because their division is garbage. I do not think they're going to make it to the Super Bowl, and so you may not see if you're waiting for Tom Brady to win yet another Super Bowl. I don't think it's there. I've also doubted Tom Brady before, and he's gone on and won a Super Bowl, so who knows, but this is my feeling after watching last night. The whole team just looks so disordered, you know, disordered, and they don't know what's going on. When you have to make a 45-year-old run uh, to, to make a play, this is not good if you're yeah. Tampa Bay. Not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> no. Brock, I'm, I'm going to quibble with your, uh, with your pick of them winning the division. I think things might be so out of control there right now that it's time for the Atlanta Falcons. Ka-ka! Ka-ka! The Dirty Birds going to fly in and upset the world to win the AFC's house with Marcus Mariota playing quarterback for them. Goodness gracious, what a terrible division that is. Brock, let's uh, move over to the world of baseball. The World Series begins tonight. The Houston Astros and Philadelphia Phillies. What are you looking for? Well, actually, before we get into sort of what you're looking for, you have a question for me. I do. I have a question. I have heard a few times in different outlets of media that if they win, this will quote, legitimize their 2017 
championships where they were caught cheating. I have a hard time with this one. I don't know if anything's ever going to legitimize it for me, Dave. I look at this and I say, if they win, this just proves to the organization you didn't need to cheat. Your thoughts? I think you nailed it right there. It cannot legitimize the 2017 World Series win amidst the critique and evidence that they cheated to win it. However, it certainly legitimizes the organization as a top-tier baseball organization because they've even turned over a bunch of the talent from that 2017 team, continuing to bring in young players, continuing to draft well, continuing to develop players. It totally and completely legitimizes the organization. You cannot legitimize that 2017 win, kind of like the uh, Chicago White Sox in the uh, early 20th century. Yeah, you... There's no legitimizing uh, cheating. I think that they, I I hope they do win. As a matter of fact, I think I would give them the edge on this. Dusty Baker has been to the playoffs a whole bunch and never gotten over the edge of winning the World Series. If 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 you know for a guy at his age he can win a World Series, I'll be pretty happy. I I do like um, Houston as their team. I think it's a deep team. I think. Um, you know, they just got a bunch of bunch of good players. Uh, Alex Bregman, uh, Jeremy Pena, the list goes on and on. And pitching uh, to begin the series with Justin Verlander versus Aaron Nola, just a real tasty start to this World Series. And both teams are on the exact same amount of rest. It's going to be a really, really good series to watch. Uh, 8 o'clock, 8.03, so get your naps in over the weekend as they'll be <laughs> A few late games. This is something I'd love to see the World Series change, Dave. I'd love to see their timing be a bit um, different. I understand the whole, you know, Fox wants it in primetime. I get it. But why can't we start the game at 7? Like, what's the difference between 7 and 8? It it would make some people be willing to stay up a bit later when you have a morning show to do. I don't know. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. It's it's based on a really archaic notion that people still work 9 to 5, that 9 to 5 is like the one way in which people work because they want to say, okay, if if someone finishes work on the West Coast at 5 p.m., that means, okay, now they can watch the game at 5 p.m. at at the bar or wherever they might want to go watch the game or listen on the radio. I I also agree it's a little bit archaic. I don't know if like full-blown 7 o'clock is the answer, but maybe something like we know we're going to get the first pitch at 727. Right. If somebody in California wants to watch the World Series, they're going to find a way to get to that screen 33 minutes before quitting time. There are ways, there are methods uh, to uh, watch baseball that go beyond sitting in front of your TV in the living room at a bar these days, for sure. Uh, Brock, so your prediction is the Houston Astros. Yeah, I, uh, but I got to tell you, um, the Philadelphia, they do have a really good team as well. Uh, Bryce Harper, Kyle Schwarber, Reese Reese Hoskins, a very good team. And, oh, yeah, they have a pitcher waiting in the wings, Noah Syndergaard. So they're not oh, going to be Thor. easy to uh, to push away. But I do think i got to give the edge to the Houston Astros. Mm. Just They've been a clean team. Their ERA has been ridiculous. They've not allowed that many runs. They've not lost a lot. They're just a complete team, and I think they're going to end up winning the World Series. Their starting pitching is so much better than Philadelphia's starting pitching, and that's ultimately what will make a difference in this series. However... I feel myself rooting for the Phillies a little bit. Even as a recovering Montreal Expos fan, a former division rival, you'd think I wouldn't be able to root for them, but there's something about the Phillies that I'm that I'm feeling. I think I just like their color scheme. Brock, let's do some other stuff for the weekend look ahead here, but you've got to be quick. You've got to promise me sort of one thought per game here. Toronto Raptors and Philadelphia 76ers playing tonight. 
Brock, didn't they just play? Yeah, they did. And I have a quick theory as to why this is happening because it happened with the Miami Heat and the Raptors. I think the NBA is looking towards uh, doing these series. I'd like to see them shaped a little bit differently. You know, play them back-to-back as opposed to this one night off in the middle. You know, that way both teams are in the same kind of boat. It's kind of weird optics, um, but that's my theory on it. Philadelphia Um, having a rough start to the year. That's my thought on this game. Rough start for Philadelphia. Totally looks good on Joel Embiid, but anyway. <laughs> Brock, uh, got to move on. Got to move on. Got to hold you there. I'm telling you, one thought per game here, man. We, we got we to gotta be tight on the clock here. Vancouver Canucks, Pittsburgh Penguins. Vancouver celebrating their first win of the season. Don't think they're going to get another one in, in this game. Just uh, very quickly and very quick thought there. Uh, Montreal Alouettes taking on Toronto Argonauts. Kind of the weakest game of my list there, but... Uh, it's CFL. Watch it. It's Canadiana. I, I, um, I don't even know why you're making me talk about the CFL between the Argos and the Owls and the Tiger Cats and the Red Blacks. It's not even the playoffs in the CFL yet, although I think it's uh, the yeah. last week of the regular season. Yes, it is. Uh, Ottawa Senators, Florida Panthers, another one of these measuring sticks for the Ottawa Senators. Let's see where they line up. They've been playing good hockey as they ought to do. Uh, Montreal so's, Canadians. So is Florida, by the way. Florida's playing good hockey, too. Yes, so it'll be a very good game for both sides and then Montreal Canadiens taking on the St. Louis Blues this weekend so lots of good stuff coming up at you Battle of Alberta yeah. once again on a Saturday night it's almost like CBC and Sportsnet planned this Alberta Alberta Calgary and Edmonton fighting for second place in that division Yes for sure and who doesn't love a Battle of Alberta uh the football undefeated Eagles taking on Pittsburgh Steelers watch out for those Eagles, they are doing great things. Uh, Miami Dolphins, Detroit Lions, and Green Bay and Buffalo to round out the weekend. I like that we always get a mention of our teams in here because gosh knows if we don't mention our teams, how would people remember, darn it, my Dolphins and your Bills. Brock, I'm going to give you one college football recommendation here. There's not a lot of great stuff on the slate tomorrow. 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, Florida and Georgia, the Florida-Georgia line, if you will, in Jacksonville, for a long time, it was referred to as the largest outdoor cocktail party on earth. For legal reasons, they can't call it that anymore. Uh, Georgia is still the number one team in the country. Florida is not ranked. However, this is one of those games when they play, you throw the records out the window. Georgia has not looked amazing, and Florida has a star quarterback, Anthony Richardson. This is probably not the kind of game where I would put money on Florida, but it's the kind of game where Florida could make it interesting. 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, Florida-Georgia line, CBS, the largest outdoor cocktail party on earth. It's going to be a fun one, Brock. Hey, I love the namesake of Richardson, so just for that, I'm going to... There we go. I think you guys might be related. Brock, have a great day, my friend. You as well. Have a good weekend. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. It's a lot of sunshine, but the cool weather has finally arrived. In Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sun and uh, clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, the high of 8. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly sunny with a high of 10. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's sunny with a high of 12. Quebec City, Quebec, it's sunny, but only 7 is the high. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and a frost advisory was in effect this morning with a high of 11. Over to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, 
It's mainly sunny, and the high is 10. Brandon, Manitoba. Sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 12. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds and the wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour as well with a high of 9. In Lethbridge, Alberta, a mix of sun and clouds, wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour and a high of 13. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds clearing this afternoon and 9 is the high. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, there's snow this morning then turning to a mix of sun and clouds and the high is negative 5. Pelona, BC, rain in the morning then clearing to become a mix of sun and clouds and 12 is the high. And finally in Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sunny clouds with chance of showers and a high of 11. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you again in a couple of minutes. But coming up next, Michael McNeely reviews the horror thriller film, The Black Phone. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It is Halloween season. And no matter how many times I tell you that horror movies scare me, you keep making me talk about them. Thankfully, I don't have to watch them. I can pawn those off to people like entertainment critic Michael McNeely. So before we talk to him for his review of The Black Phone, we've got a clip from the trailer. I'm going to give you some pre-description. A young boy finds himself in a dark, windowless room with a black phone ringing, and the locked door opens to show a horned, masked man standing in the doorway. He then tosses the boy a newspaper with the headline, Suburb Rocked as Another Child Goes Missing. Let's check it out. Tell me your name. Taylor. I was really starting to like you, Finny. I almost let you go. All right, I'm feeling the chill, even though I haven't watched it and I'm already scared. Let's bring in Michael McNeely for his thoughts on this one. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. Michael, we got a little taste in the trailer. I'm already shaking, but can you tell me a bit more about what the black phone is about? Yes. So the boy in the video clip is Philly and his just an ordinary average boy who goes to school and has to contend with bullies and has a somewhat alcoholic father at home. He also has a sister, but we'll talk about the sister in a minute. He's just an ordinary boy until he gets kidnapped by, believe it or not, a homicidal clown who has been nicknamed in the neighborhood as the Grabber, played by Ethan Hawke. And so he needs to find a way to escape from this kidnapper. 
Otherwise, he's probably going to be dead very soon. So I think that's ultimately what you have to work with. The reason why the, the movie is called The Black Phone is because there is a black phone in that womb. It's not connected to anything. It's apparently not working, but it rings mysteriously. So why, why, how, how could it be written? How could it be working? The genre of the kidnap thriller has been around forever. There are good ones, there are bad ones, and there are all kinds of machinations in between. What makes for a good kidnap thriller? I think, in my opinion, I want there to be an opportunity to fight back. Because if there's no opportunity to fight back, I'm just watching a snuff film. And I don't think those are very fun. Not that we should be saying, you know, people being kidnapped is fun. But this is the strange world of movies. Movies are fun to watch, even if people suffer in them. But ultimately, the people in a kidnap thriller should be able to give the kidnapper a one for their money. I, I note that this is different than a hostage kidnapping. This is just a straight up kidnapping. There's no ransom. So it's up to the person to escape. We'll, we'll probably talk about hostage kidnappings another time with another film. Okay. I look forward to it. Michael, let's talk about the villain. You mentioned he was played by Ethan Hawke. What stood out to you? What did you make of his performance? Well, it's interesting because I've watched a few Ethan Hawke films over the the last few weeks. Um, I think Ethan Hawke is very convincing as a psychopath, even though he is masked even though you can't really see him for most of the film. Um, he really is evil in this film. He's really depraved and sadistic and all the things you may or may not want in a kidnap. Um, it's not exactly clear whether or not he is a pedophile, but the film leaves that open for interpretation, which is probably better than than if it actually had an explicit uh, answer to that question. Um, So I think Ethan Hawke is playing against type. So he's not that guy from, you know, those romantic comedies with Julie Delpy or whatever those were. (laughs) Michael, as mentioned, this is a common trope or a common genre of film. What makes this film stand out? The victims, the victims make the film stand out. So, spoiler, mini spoiler, because it's mentioned in the description. Um, the the victims who have died manage to use the black phone to contact, to contact Fetty. Also, I need to talk about the badass sister, because if we don't talk about the sister played by Madeline McGuire, we are doing this film a great disservice. She plays Gwen, and she is feisty. She can fight anybody and anything. She has a fight with the alcoholic father at the beginning that I was just cowering. Because I I know that child actors have to deal with a lot of traumatic stuff. But Madeline just goes in there, and she does an uppercut. 
Well, I mean, I don't think she doesn't have a cat, but I think she gives it, she gives it her all. So it's ironic that Fiddy is the one that's being kidnapped because if, if, um, if Gwen was kidnapped, Ethan Hunt would be dead in five seconds. <laughs> when it comes to satisfying storytelling, particularly in horror films or thriller films, it's that things get tied together. Does this film deliver? Yes. So all the victims give some advice. And it's important to think about the advice that they gave and also to realize that they died. So maybe their advice is mistaken, but they're still trying their best to help Finny. And then there's, of course, the sister that I just talked about. She's alive. And she's also trying to help Finny as well. So there's a lot of people trying to help Finney at this time to escape. And so I think when you when you put in all the efforts, maybe something good happens, but I won't uh, I won't be so easy as to give the ending. <laughs> That's right. Now with Dave Brown is a spoiler-free zone. Michael, you can spoil this for me though, because it seems like if I'm reading between the lines that you kind of liked this movie, how would you rate it out of ten? Well, I would probably rate it a 10 out of 10. I, I believe that this film makes it into the nice Stephen King adjacent zone. Well, I mean, we did have a homicidal clown. We have a system with psychic powers. We have, um, we have coming of age stories. We have death of children. I mean, there's all the Stephen King things and new within missing is Stephen King himself. So, have at it. And Dave, I know you're a bit scared. I understand that. But I think if you're going to get kidnapped, this is a good preparation for that. <laughs> I don't know who would bother kidnapping me. It would be kind of a futile, futile cause. Michael, thank you for this. Happy Halloween. Have a great weekend. Yes. Remember, trick or treat, but no tricks and just treats, please. Yeah, give me all the treats. That's Michael McNeely treating you to a review of The Black Phone, and you can find Michael in Kingston, Ontario, in case you want to kidnap him instead of me. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Nizreen and Ramya, see what's cracking. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Miracle of live TV and living in a condo prone to leaks is that security will call you during commercial break and be like, we need to let somebody into your apartment. And then the music comes back on to tell you that you're about to go back on live television. So now I sit here wondering what precisely might be wrong in my apartment. And I get to talk to you as a plumber goes for an unscheduled visit into my unit. Real talk with Dave Brown. Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid and Alex Smythe for a conversation here about something not related to God knows how much damage might be occurring in my condo at the moment for like the fifth leak in two years. I'm going to sell this piece of garbage like today at the rate things are going. Although who wants to buy a leaky condo? Nazreen, do you want to buy a leaky condo? 
I'm all for it. <laughs> okay, all right. I've already um, got a customer I, I hope, here. I hope all is good for sure. Uh, Alex Nazarene, I think, beat you to making the offer on my condo. Yeah, well, I, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that uh, your upstairs neighbor is uh, a bit of a causer of leaks in your apartment. So maybe if the neighbor goes, I'll be interested. Ah, fair point. Ooh. Although it seems like he stopped learning how to play drums. So that's a, that's a real merit. Um, okay, before I dwell and dive too deep into my own depression here, let's talk about something a little more exciting. We have not talked all week long about Taylor Swift's new record. The Swifties are loving it unsurprisingly, and people seem to be responding well to the new record as well. I haven't gotten to it yet. Nazreen, have you? I have not. I have to admit, no, I've, I've been trying to get around it. Alex, have you gotten into the new Taylor Swift album yet? You know, despite what everyone may think of me, I'm not the a big Swifty or Taylor Swift fan, ah. so... I can I can uh, uh, unequivocally say no. I have not listened to the new album. But it does lead me to a broader question: Who is an artist whose work will make your world stop? A couple of months ago, when Kendrick Lamar dropped the new record, we did a review the following Monday. I don't know that our world stopped, but Nazreen, I know you and I both listened sort of within the first day. There's currently a movie that's getting released today. It's the new Martin McDonough film. He's the director who made Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, as well as Seven Psychopaths and a bunch of other really good movies over the years. A director that I love. I'm intending to go see his new movie. Probably not today. Probably not this weekend. So it really has me thinking, who is an artist who will make your world stop? You'll drop everything to consume their content. Nazreen, does one come to mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. The weekend. He has a like a special place in my heart. And I, I would drop everything just to listen to his new work. Okay, the weekend. That's Canadian content there too. So that's all the all the better. Yeah, plus CR plus. The CRTC is happy that you shouted out the weekend. <laughs> that's well done, Alex Smythe. What about you? An artist who, if they're dropping something new, will make you drop everything. You know, I was thinking about this, and when it comes to music, I don't think I have anyone like that anymore. There, there used to be a bunch that I would be like, oh, I I need to listen to this new album. I oh, they dropped this new song. I need to need to listen to it and and, and check it out, but. I found a lot of the bands I kind of followed over the past like 5, 10, 15 years. It's like they've gotten to the point now. It's like when they do release something, it's very different. And typically I haven't enjoyed it as much as the stuff before. But when it comes to films, I, I will say uh, there's a couple that I'm always like, I need to see this. I need to consume it. One is anything that uh, cinematographer Roger Deakin does. I mean, I am all over it. He just has such a beautiful craftsmanship style when it comes to being behind the camera. I mean, he's done a lot of everyone's favorite uh, Coen Brothers movies. He's worked extensively now with Denis Villeneuve, and he's done oh, some of my Denis favorite, favorite movies. Oh, 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 yeah. yeah so, so you take Old Brother Where Art Now, Big Lebowski, and then Blade Runner and Sicario. Like, that's all uh, Roger Deakins' Uh, cinematography so it's like you you don't always know his work but as soon as you start kind of peeling back the layers and be like wait I like this movie I like this movie I like this movie and, and it's like oh there's a reason why there's a, a, a clear thread so he's definitely one that I, I dive into and then the other one would be anything that Spike Jones directs as a movie I'm I'm all over it they're all unique they're all different but 
it's something that just captivates me in some weird uh, way that it's just like, I need to consume this. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, right, that we think about the, the film context and say when Denis Villeneuve makes a new film, he's now earned my trust, that he's now one of my directors who I will go see. Martin McDonough, it's the same thing. Even someone like Quentin Tarantino. When Tarantino drops a movie, I'm going to go see it. The thing is, I'm not going to drop everything. It doesn't make my world stand still because I'm going to take my time. Maybe it's going to be a week. Maybe it's going to be a couple weeks. I don't like crowds. I don't like opening weekends. So it, for me, there might be a little bit of a delay there. So that probably violates the point of the question. Does it make my world stand still? The one thing that happens now in the music world, especially is boom, your phone sends you the notification that definitely happened to me with the new death cab for cutie album. And I'm really glad that Spotify alerted me about that new album because I'm obsessed with it. But again, I don't know if that makes my world stand still. It's not like I sought them out, but as soon as I heard that it dropped, I hit play. I was talking to our TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian earlier this week, where Spotify told him that Sloan, I don't know if you guys remember Sloan, the Canadian rock band from the 90s. They dropped a new album and Bruce listened to it. So sometimes we can be influenced by our machines, by our devices. But Eliza Rocco, you have an answer to this question. I have two answers. Music-wise, um, the only right answer, uh, Rihanna. She has Ooh. been absent from the music scene for so long, and she finally put out a single. Oh, uh, did she? Oh, yeah, yeah, late last night. And as I woke up, this morning and that was the first thing I listened to. Was it good? Early it was, impressions? It was beautiful. It was um it, it's actually <laughs> a part of the Black Panther, the Black Panther oh, 2. Oh yeah, the soundtrack. Wakanda Forever soundtrack. Yes, yeah, okay. Yes. And it it was it was quite beautiful, I have to say. I sent it to my boyfriend and he said, "Why are you trying to make me cry this morning?" Oh. <laughs> so Okay, that's that, see the first Black Panther soundtrack was really good too, produced by Kendrick Lamar. And my, my second one is anything that's produced, directed, or anything that Taika Waititi is a part of. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, he is, he is a creative genius, I have to say. Uh, what are some, what are some uh, of his projects of note to shout out for people? I think Thor Ragnarok was one of his Thor operations. Ragnarok, that was a good one. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, which was... Oh, yeah. I, don't, I think that came out 20, 2019. 2019. Movie of the year, for sure, for me. Um, what We Do in the Shadows, he's a part of. Yeah, one yeah. One of my favorite shows. Okay, all right. Yeah, the list is getting pretty good here. Yeah, uh, Hunt for the Wilderbeast is kind of an old one of his, but it's very good, and I highly recommend it. He had Older a, people. He, he had a great cameo, not a cameo, a small role in uh, the Ryan Reynolds movie last year called Free Guy. That was also, he's, yeah, he's, he's a very, very talented guy. Very, very, very talented individual. Nazreen, we got to kind of shouting out TV shows and movies there. What about a TV show or movie that makes your world stand still? Forget TV show or movie. I wanted to shout out an actress. My favorite all-time actress is Sandra Bullock. And when she's with um, Ryan Reynolds, oh, my God, it's it's a whole different thing. But okay. I, like one of my favorite movies that stands out is The Proposal. So, yeah, if I hear that she's in a new movie, Sandra Bullock, I'll drop everything for her. She's oh, ah, like the, so good. When the rom-coms drop and his ring goes running, <laughs> there's no doubt about that one. All right, guys, we're going to say goodbye to all of you. Eliza, thank you for your input on this one. Nazreen, have an awesome weekend. And Alex, you're about to head off on vacation, my friend. Have a very restful, relaxing time in the Caribbean. Thanks, Dave. You may have noticed there's no rum yet today. That does not mean there is not an episode of 
the, too many too many negatives there. There is an episode of Kelly and Company coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time, irrespective of Rumya not being there. And of course, it's Friday, which means a John Beeler update and the chatty bookshelf with Ryan Huey. Coming up after the break with Halloween around the corner, Greg David will tell you about some special Halloween TV programming. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in AMI communications specialist Greg David to find out what's going on around this company in the world of entertainment more broadly. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. Greg, let's start in the world of YouTube and how AMI podcasts have found their way onto that platform. Why the push for podcasts on YouTube, Greg? Uh, just simply to get a larger reach. I mean, uh, st- uh, stats have shown that people are headed to YouTube, um, whether they're blind, partially sighted, able-bodied, member of the disability community, people are going to YouTube. I certainly have spent a lot more time on YouTube in the past couple of years than mm-hmm. I ever had mm-hmm. uh, before, you know, just consuming content. And that's where people are going. And so we thought, why not um, add the audio podcast, but with the video element uh, to uh, to the YouTube platform? Fundamentally, YouTube is such a great way to share content because pretty much everybody has it on every phone, every web mm-hmm. browser, every everything. There's no little pop-ups that says, sign up for this or sign up for that or you need this to listen to the whole thing. No, you just go to YouTube, boom, it's there, it's yours. Watch, sit through a couple pre-roll ads and away you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Greg, let's talk about a couple podcasts of note because not every single one of the podcasts are up on YouTube just yet, but there are a couple ones that are really, really good. What's going on with Raising Kindness with our old friend Becky Zarr? Yeah, Becky is back with a brand new podcast. She did over 20 episodes of The Blind Reality over the past couple of years, and she's back with Raising Kindness. And in this one, uh, she visits, she and her son, Bennett, visit different uh, communities uh, in Saskatchewan and really put a spotlight on some of the, the social and ser- social services that are available. Um, they, they say they perform acts of kindness in such settings as shelters, community centers, and nursing homes in southern Saskatchewan and along the way people are going to learn more about that about those uh those places the most recent uh podcast of raising kindness featured cnib kids camp that's available in saskatchewan and so uh becky and bennett found out all about found out more about that but the interesting thing is that bennett has become quite the little broadcaster <laughs> he and he and he, yeah and he and his uh, he always has a friend that guests in each podcast episode and they uh they challenge people they do a kindness challenge where they say you know here's something that we want you to do in the next month, whether that be to drop off food at a food bank, uh, do some volunteer work somewhere. Uh, but they always put out that kindness challenge to put the onus on us, the people that are consuming the product, to go out and help out in the community as well. Greg, let's jump over to someone who folks who watch this show know really well. It's Joita Gupta. We just heard from Joita in the first hour of the show mm-hmm. as part of the news panel. But how yeah. is the f- pulse manifesting in video formats? 
Well, these one-on-one -on -one conversations that Joita has go up on YouTube every week. Uh, the most recent episode featured disability activist Judith Human, who talked about Fable Tech Lab's new training course for job seekers and disabilities. And I was just telling some folks on the Marcom team that that video podcast went up yesterday, and it's already at over 400 views. Wow. So already connecting with people on the YouTube platform. Absolutely. Now, not to toot our own horn, but great. You've been working really hard behind the scenes with us on getting some Dave now with Dave Brown content up on YouTube as well. Yeah, so the weekly highlights that, uh, you know, there's always uh, at least one segment from the week that gets featured on social media, but we brought that over to the YouTube platform as well. And so the the most recent one uh, was with Marco Pasca, who was on earlier this week discussing National Disability Employment Awareness Month by contemplating how entrepreneurship factors into the inclusive employment landscape. So that one is up on the Now with Dave Brown uh, YouTube page, just the latest highlight that's been up there. Yeah, we really appreciate a lot of the work that you at the marketing and communications team are doing to get that up there. It's also helped us and a lot of our a lot of our guests and contributors uh, expand their reach as well. So again, it's a real testament to the quality of YouTube, but also a huge uh, congratulations to you and the team who are working really, really hard behind the, behind the scenes without necessarily getting the same kudos that we get on the air. So many thanks to you. I'll express that amongst uh, amongst us and the whole the whole rest of the gang here in terms of the work that you guys are doing in the the Marcom department. Uh, we'll do. Happy to do it, uh, Greg. This one is pretty self-explanatory, but where should people go if they want to find out more, maybe even find direct links to the to the YouTube podcasts? Uh, we have built a page for the for just that reason, Dave. If you go to ami.ca slash video podcasts, so that's ami.ca slash video podcasts, you'll find uh, you'll find direct links to those YouTube channels. Uh, they're sometimes hard to find, you know. There's so oh, much yeah. on YouTube. We made it easy for you. You just have to click on the link and it'll take you right to the YouTube channel for each of the shows that we talked about and all of the other video podcasts that are available right now through AMI. Yeah, definitely worth folks uh, subscribing to the AMI YouTube channel though because there's lots of good stuff even just beyond the podcasts. Lots of good stuff popping up there. So worth uh, once you once you find it, make sure to uh, follow, ring, hit the bell for the uh, for the notifications, all that stuff that video podcasters tell you to do. Uh, Greg, let's jump over to Halloween because we have it coming down the pipeline on Monday night which means there's some special TV programming coming down the pipelines along with it, including some movies as well. So let's start with something that Amy Amanti reviewed earlier in the month on Netflix called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. It jumped out to you as well. Why? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Stephen King aficionado. I have all of his books, and and I've watched all of his movies. And and sometimes that translation between a book or a short story or, or a novella to the bigger small screen doesn't always translate. And you know, for every, they're they're not all the Shawshank Redemption. They don't end up getting you know <laughs> kudos like that. To be totally honest, uh, but uh, yeah, I wanted to mention Mr. Harrigan's phone, like Amy did, because I really enjoyed the translation of the novella of the same name over to the Netflix uh, uh, platform. Uh, it's directed and written by John Lee Hancock, who did um, The Blind Side, which is one of my favorite, oh, uh, yeah. favorite, favorite movies. It's it's in my watch list. Whenever I'm feeling down, I watch The Blind Side. And he has, um, you know, translated the novella of this relationship between a young man and an older gentleman and the friendship that they create over reading stories um, into something really scary um, and disturbing. And what I loved in particular are the performances. Um, Donald Sutherland is in this. 
and uh, just wonderful as the older gentleman that that bonds with this younger uh, guy and the relationship that they have even beyond the grave. Uh, so if you're into Stephen King, you're into that story, or you just want to be mildly disturbed by the thought of communicating with somebody from beyond the grave using a cell phone, check out Mr. Harrigan's phone on Netflix. How about a blast from the past here that's been picked up on Netflix, Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, so, you know, Robert Stack, uh, if you want to go back and check out the original, it's on the CTV app, but Netflix has brought it on to a whole new generation of fans, and I wanted to bring it up because there are a couple of episodes that have been uh, released in Volume 3, which just came out in the last two weeks that I thought fit with the holiday mode, and the first one uh, is uh, is about UFOs uh, that were found uh, or were spotted by over 300 people uh, just above Lake Michigan uh, off, the co- off the coast of, uh, of the state of Michigan. And normally, you know, it's one or two people saying, yeah, I saw something. And you think, well, you know, what were you drinking that night? But the fact that hundreds of people saw this exact same thing, including a guy working radar that night, is worth checking out. And the other episode that just came out this week is all about Bigfoot uh, and UFOs and uh, the Navajo Rangers that do those investigations. I haven't checked that one out yet, but that's on my watch list for the weekend. But just wanted to let you know about two spooky episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Love it. Now, AMI has also jumped onto the spooky bandwagon with sightseers. Who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Yeah, it's true. Uh, Mark uh, Mark Jolie, uh, who is blind, uh, is uh, teamed up with Laura Warren, and they're both uh, they're both seers. They both can uh, they both have visions. And uh, the first season of Sightseers is all about the two of them going along the East Coast and checking out haunted locations. And while they're checking out haunted locations and getting the vibes from these buildings, the second half of the episodes brings in, bring in uh, scientific experts to perhaps debunk what is happening. So not only is it kind of a spooky show. But it also delves into the history of the, the Halifax region, including Randall House Museum, the Halifax Club, and uh, a place called New Ross Castle, which is quite an interesting episode that you should check out. And you can stream all the episodes of Sightseers on AMI.ca and the AMI-tv app. And a special shout-out to Bruce Baclarian, who actually went in and got us a sound-up from the show that we can play for you right now. So let's roll that clip from Sightseers. I'm Mark Jolly. I'm a psychic a modern-day oracle. You have a question you'd like to start with? Although I've been blind since birth, I have the ability to see things that others cannot. When I touch somebody's hand, I get flashes of their past, present, and future. I've teamed up with one of North America's most talented mediums. I'm Laura Warren. I've been communicating with spirits since I was a child. As a professional psychic medium, I act as a conduit between the living and the dead. Laura and I are on the road, putting our psychic skills to the test, investigating paranormal mysteries in some of the oldest places in North America. While we tap into our psychic ability to solve the case, outside experts use logic and science in effort to debunk the supernatural. It's a dead zone. I did not find anything that could be interpreted as ghosts. In the end, it's up to you to decide, is this place haunted or not? And of course, folks can uh, find that show after that little taste that you got at AMI.ca or on the AMI-tv app for Apple or Android devices. Greg, let's stay in the theme of paranormal here because there's a specialty channel that I'd never heard of before. Didn't flip all the way down to the dial on this one. Travel and Escape, it's available in Canada. It's become the home of the uh, 
creepiness in Canada, some supernatural. Give me the scoop on some of this programming. Yeah, Travel and Escape, first of all, is a specialty channel you have to pay a little bit extra for. And it used to be all about traveling. Uh, but uh, since COVID came down on us, uh, they switched over to mainly paranormal programming. And especially uh, over uh, the past week and leading through next week, uh, they're going to be, it's all paranormal all the time. And in addition to a show called Haunted Hospitals, which uh, has starred Mike Ross as, I think he played a ghost in an episode ooh, of Haunted ooh. Hospitals. But Eli Roth presents A Ghost Ruined My Life is worth checking out. So Eli Roth is a, is a director, executive producer. Uh, he's, uh, he made the Hostel movies, um, which are truly terrifying uh, movies. I was disturbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, unlike other shows in the genre where they kind of have people that are being haunted talking right into the camera the entire time, these uh, the episodes of A Ghost Ruined My Life go through recreations uh, with top-notch actors and actresses. I mean, not A-listers but they are very capable actors and actresses. And so what you do get are truly scary uh, recreations of what happened to these people. Um, I watched uh, the most recent episode was a young uh, young woman recounting uh, being haunted by a poltergeist and how it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it turned out that there was a family curse behind it and a very effective episode. So if you really want to get into the creepy stuff and you're paying a little bit extra for your cable, get Eli, well, check out Eli Roth Presents, A Ghost Ruined My Life on Travel and Escape. Mike Ross uh, on his way to becoming A-list. He was just nominated for uh, one of his acting roles for an award in New Zealand. So uh, mm -hmm. Mike, international superstar. Greg, we are flat out of time, but it's always a blast catching up. Thank you for doing a bit of curation around Halloween for us. We appreciate it. Happy to do it. Enjoy your candy. Oh, I always do. That's Greg David. He's a communication specialist for AMI. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. But special thank yous going out to people like Alex Smythe, Brock Richardson, Andrika Delanerol, Bruce Baclarian, Paul Daniel, Marion Dion Jones, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, and Kingsley Juco, as well as our technical staff working behind the scenes, putting fires out. Until Monday, I'm Dave Brown. Have a nice weekend. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.